welcome to the Dialogue Book Report. My name is Andrew Hall. I am the literature book review editor at Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And joining me today is Taylor Petrie, the editor of Dialogue. Taylor, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to start this new podcast. We're going to be talking about the books that are reviewed in each issue of Dialogue as the magazine comes out and going over what's the state of Mormon studies. Yeah, books are such a huge and an important part of, I think, what Mormon studies is and, and what our community is about. And we've been doing these book reviews for so long. I, I think that having a podcast for people to be able to engage and hear about what's the new material that's coming out is going to be a huge benefit. So thank you for doing this. Dialogue Book Report is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. We are a collection of independent, interesting podcasts to promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition and culture. And you can access all the podcasts in our network at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. And there you can support this podcast and others in our network by subscribing to the network. And subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. So the issue that's just out now is the winter 2020 issue. And we have seven book reviews. 2019. Uh, oh, it's the 2019 it's- it's coming yeah. out in January, but we're still called 2019. That's right. <laughs> so there's seven books in this issue. Uh, we're going to talk about four of them today. And we're also going to have a interview with two of the authors coming up. Those authors are going to be Roger Terry and Angelis Clayton, who both produced missionary memoirs about their time as missionaries in Europe 30 to 40 years ago. And we're going to talk a little bit about the whole genre of missionary memoirs. But first, we're going to talk about two other books that are appeared in this issue, First one is Jana Reese's The Next Mormons, How Millennials Are Changing the LDS Church, published by Oxford University Press. It is one of the most important books of 2019, easily, and maybe one of the most important books of the last decade in Mormon studies. If people haven't read it or are not familiar with it or not familiar with Jana Reese, you should definitely follow her writings, not just her published work, but also her blogging and other uh, work that she does, because she's been able to delve into a sociological study on Latter-day Saints that has broken new ground like we've never seen before. And, and in part, that's because this book is based on a funded survey that uh, was really the first of its kind to uh, meet a kind of scientific standard of, of what good surveys are supposed to do. And it allowed her to get into depth on what Mormons are thinking and what Mormons are doing in all different age and racial de- demographics, uh, different aspects of sexuality demographics, all kinds of uh, just deep insight into this stuff. And we just learned amazing amounts of information from uh, from this survey. So it's just been a, a really groundbreaking book and has so many little gems of like, wow, I didn't know that. Or wow, I can't believe that that's where millennials are going. Or I can't believe that that's what boomers are thinking. Or Gen X, uh, you know, she, she's just been able to, to bring all of these fascinating insights together with this new research that has, uh, that has really blown apart what we had before in terms of depth and quality. Janice played a very interesting role in the um, Mormon studies world these days as both you know, a scholar with this kind of work and as a commentator with her own blog, her own work with the news, commenting on all the different news things that are coming out. She's really kind of a public intellectual who's taken on a variety of roles. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She's a, she's a, a brilliant writer, a witty, insightful uh, has a great biography herself. Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely recommend that people get to know her and and get to know this book as it's going to have, I think, a, a long lasting impact for kind of exposing the varieties of perspectives that Latter-day Saints have on a lot of complicated issues. 
there, there are a couple of insights that I'm recalling that I that just blew me away from the book, and I don't want to spoil it because there's so many uh, great things. But uh, one of the obvious ones is that millennials, it's about millennials, it focuses on them, think about Mormonism in very different ways than the older generations. They're obviously more liberal, and that's true of most younger generations, right? And how that liberalism manifests on questions about LGBT issues, but even things like observance of the word of wisdom. Active millennials are not really observant of the word of wisdom in ways that earlier generations were. It, it's just things that you wouldn't know from going to your local ward or, or, or so on. So anyway, there's just so much that's fascinating in there about trying to understand where the church might be going based on these trends. Anyway, but yeah, let's dive into the review. Uh, uh, we had Ryan Bell review the book. You want to talk a little bit about it? Ryan Bell is a... Um comes with a sociology background, and he's quite positive about the book, about the the kinds of information like th that you're talking about, the way that she categorizes the generations in, into these different categories and argues thematically about how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is really a dynamic institution, that there's a lot more change, a lot more dynamism in the different attitudes of generations than one might think. He is critical of some of the methodology that Jana uses, and he goes into some details about statistical models and using co-founder and co control variables. And so he has some things about say about that. And so if you're interested in the details about uh, how these kind of studies work, he has positive things to say about the work, but he also has some criticisms as well. So I, I encourage everyone to take a look at that review. Yeah. And, and I think in part, what I also took from the review too, is that Jana's book is really a kind of first step in, in analyzing uh, these trends and analyzing this data and trying to understand these correlations. And, uh, you know, that's always the case, right? That uh, whenever new research is, is done, our, our ability to analyze that, we're never going to get to the bottom of, of that. There's going to be more to say and more to, to try to figure out a little bit there. And uh, Jan, I know, is doing more research on this. And so we'll also see what, what future directions that, that goes in. Okay. Tell me, tell me about uh, one of the other books that we've got, John Benyon's Ezekiel's Third Wife. We do a lot of fiction reviews in Dialogue 2, and this is one of the, uh, the, the big fiction books that came out last year. That's right. John Benyon's been a, a mainstay in Mormon literature for the last couple of decades, writing uh, literature that's challenging, but coming from the Mormon perspective. He, but he did mostly contemporary novels and short stories up to now. This is one of two novels that he published in 2019 that are mysteries, murder mysteries, set in Utah Territory in the 1880s, particularly mm. amongst polygamists. He takes uh, a genre approach to Mormonism and does a really interesting job with that. This is actually the book we're looking at here is the second book of the series. The first one is called An Unarmed Woman. And a review of that book appeared in earlier spring 2019 issue of Dialogue. No, it's, it's not called and, Ezekiel's Second Wife. Huh? Okay. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, this one is Ezekiel's Third Wife. The um, narrator and eponymous heroine has four last names, um, none of which are superfluous. She has the name of her abusive birth father. She's the stepdaughter of a Mormon rancher and lawman who appears to be loosely based on Orrin Porter Rockwell and becomes his favorite daughter and works with him on solving criminal cases that he becomes involved with. Then she also marries polygamously when she's 18 to an older man who has gone on a mission for most of the second novel. And while her polygamous husband is away, she reconnects with a childhood sweetheart and decides that if polygamy is okay for men, that it should be okay for women as well. And she marries <laughs> him legally. And so she has, she, yeah, that's her fourth name, fourth, uh, fourth, fourth surname. 
So it's, it, it treats polygamy as this uh, enormously complex institution that it was. And it does not entirely reject the institution of polygamy. The novel shows how polygamy allows her mother to escape from abusive man and enjoy the protection of her dream family and also the benefit it provides to her. But she does reject the patriarchal assumptions that only men should be able to marry multiple partners. So it puts her directly at odds with the community, of course, and serves as a thought experiment to test all the non-patriarchal defenses of polygamy that we have created to try to make our ancestors seem a little less weird. Mm. Uh, the book is reviewed by Michael Austin, and he's a great fan of murder mysteries. And so he's very positive about this book, about both its take on Mormonism, polygamy, and it's what it does as a murder mystery. These two novels were published by two different publishers, and it just happened to be that they came out within a couple of months of each other. First one was from Signature, and the second one is from a, a British publisher named Roundfire. But they really work as a set. And, and it's interesting, we seem to have a mini trend of novels about Utah-era polygamy uh, this year in 2019 and 2020. We have these two novels that came out, another one by a woman named Anne Weiss, Weissgarber called The Glove Maker, which is receiving very strong reviews about Mormon men and women on the underground during the time when they uh, were fleeing from marshals in Utah. There is the novel Before Us Like a Land of Dream by Karen Anderson, Utah Valley University professor. We had a selection from that novel published in Dialogue a couple of issues ago. And that's a very dreamlike literary take on the toll that polygamy played on in uh, late 19th century Utah. We have two novels that are coming out. One has come out, one will come out, about St. Thomas, a town in Nevada, Dean Hughes's Muddy, Where Faith and Polygamy Collides, and Phyllis Barber's The Desert Between Us, both about this town that actually disappeared when the Hoover Dam was built. It's, so this town no longer exists, but it apparently played a very interesting role in uh, polygamy during that time. We're actually going to have a review in an upcoming issue of both those two novels together. Excellent. Sounds like some great fiction uh, that, that's out there. Seems like there's some great Mormon literature. We're, we're excited to, to feature it and to talk about it. So besides the, the book reviews, uh, I'm sorry, besides the, uh, the nonfiction and the fiction, we also have a couple of uh, memoirs uh, that we've reviewed. Tell us a little bit about these. So By Common Consent Press came out with two missionary memoirs at the same time one by a male and one by a female. Uh, Roger Terry's memoir, Bruder, is about his time in the Hamburg, Germany mission in 1975 through 1977. And Angela Liscombe Clayton's The Legend of Hermana Plunge is about her time in the Canary Islands in 1989 through 1990, a Spanish-speaking mission. And both these authors, there's a, they're part of a, a mini-surge, again, about missionary memoirs. And it probably starts with another author, Craig Harline, who's memoir Way Below the Angels about his time in Belgium was very strongly reviewed in 2017. He's a, he's a real literary craftsman, Craig Harline. And I think both of these authors saw that and were inspired to bring their own takes about the missionary experience. That's great. And I'm glad that some place like BCC Press is also a venue to, to, to start to publish this stuff. They've got some great content coming out and that has come out in, in recent years. So we're, we're excited to see them as a new player on the publication scene. That's right. Okay. So now we're going to begin the interview with Roger and Angela. Thank you. We're with Roger Terry, who has written the missionary memoir, Bruder, about his time in the Hamburg, Germany mission in 1975 to 1977, and also with Angela Scum Clayton, 
whose memoir, The Legend of Hermana Plunge, is about her time in the Canary Islands in 1989 to 1990. Roger Terry is the editorial director at BYU Studies. He's also the author of four novels, three nonfiction books, and numerous articles, essays, editorials, and short stories, as well as commentary on economics, politics, and Mormonism. Angela Liscom Clayton is a retired business executive and current small business owner. She's married with three children, lives in Scottsdale, Arizona, has a degree in English literature, and writes for the Mormon blogs Wheats and Tares and By Common Consent. Welcome, Roger and Angela. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's start, I guess, in order of the missionary time, which would be uh, Roger Terry's book, Bruder. Roger, can you tell me what made you want to write this book? Good question. I had the idea of writing a mission memoir years ago and never did it. And uh, I'm glad I didn't because it would have been, oh, just sort of a retelling of the best two years of my life. But as I've gotten older and thought more about it, and as I've spent a long time studying Mormonism, I realized that some of the experiences I had as a missionary were not quite as simple as I thought they were. In fact, they were quite perplexing and raised some interesting questions that I thought related to today's church. And so I thought this was a good time to to write it. It, it ended up, I think, being a little bit different than most mission memoirs. How's that? Well, partly because I tell it in third person. Bruder Terry, who's the main character in the book, is so different from who I am today that I felt like I should tell it third person and inject a lot of commentary. So that's what I did. That was really fascinating style. The reviewer mentions that it reminded them of Kurt Vonnegut's style. A little bit. I actually wrote one of, well, a couple of my novels in first person. And so I thought, well, it's only appropriate to write a, an autobiographical piece in third person. When you talked about Bruder coming off the plane as a different person and trying to analyze who this person was and the way that he thought, it was a very interesting approach. Uh, Angela, can you tell us about what made you want to write your book? Sure, no problem. I think for me, I had I had written well. Actually, I had read uh, Craig Harline's book, Way Below the Angels, and I mean, of course, I really enjoyed it. It's a great read, a really good mission memoir. And when I read it, I thought this experience is quite different, though, from what I had as a sister and being in the minority as a sister. And that also got me thinking. Well, I was in the minority. I'm not sure sister missionaries today are. They're a lot closer. They're not really 50-50, but they're a lot closer uh, in terms of representation than they were in my day. And I realized a lot of my experience was kind of as an outsider on the inside of a mission and being treated differently as a result of my sex, which I think differently in some ways, preferentially, and in other ways, absolutely not preferentially. <laughs> so I just thought it would be an interesting view to say, well, what is this like? And part of it, I thought, well, you know, I'd love to encourage more women to do a mission because I think that we change the norms if we are more represented. And part of it was just, I would love for the elders to understand what it is like to be a part of their little kingdom here. Like, what is it like to be a woman in, in a very male organization? You don't get that opportunity all the time to kind of infiltrate these mostly male spaces as a woman. So anyway, that was part of it. Uh, and then the other thing was, of course, as Roger said, when I was younger, you know, when I was closer to my mission, we always would joke about, oh, we should write a tell-all memoir. <laughs> <laughs> because th there were some things in my mission that were quite unique um, or from what I've heard were perhaps a little more lax than in some other missions, which I think was a bit of a byproduct of where I served and probably also the mission president's 
chosen culture and what his preferences were. So uh, as I had told mission stories over the decades to friends, some of them were like, you guys did what? <laughs> so it was an opportunity to just, again, say every mission is different. And here are the things that we did and, and how we felt about rules and how we felt about the work that we were doing. Um, there are a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Can you give me an example of, of how the mission was culture was more lax than some other missions? Well, for one, we really had almost no contact with president or the office or headquarters unless you happened to be stationed on the same island. The other islands, you went months without seeing anyone in leadership other than maybe your local district leader or your zone leader. There was just a lot of isolation. And then I think the other thing is just we had a lot of rah-rah culture amongst the leaders. There was a sort of a feeling if you were successful in terms of numbers, it didn't really matter how you got there. It didn't really matter. You could kind of cut loose and, and play. If you worked hard, you could play hard, that kind of thing. I really appreciated the female perspective from Angela's book because my mission probably had even fewer sister missionaries than yours did. And for some reason, maybe the mission president didn't trust me, but he never put me in a district with any sisters. So I spent my whole mission really not, not associating with sisters at all. And so it was nice to, to read your view of that. My wife served a mission, so I've heard a bit about her experience in southern Chile, but but that was that was interesting. Yeah, some of the nicest comments I had on the book um, came from men I served with that I haven't talked to in decades who, uh, you know, went out or some of them were in leadership roles or whatever, and they read it and they said, you know, this is helping me kind of unpack my feelings about the mission and, and the things I did as a leader and what it would have been like to be somebody who wasn't in the leadership ranks, who was barred from that and just what it was like for the sisters and so on. So it was, oh. it was really helpful. Can you give me an example of how the mission was different for a sister? Uh, well, yeah, a couple of these things that I cover in the book. One is just when there is no possibility that you're ever going to be in leadership in any capacity or considered for leadership, you have a couple of ways of looking at that. I mean, the way I looked at it, which I don't know whether this is the most common or maybe it's 50-50, I just kind of looked at it like the the male leaders that were younger than us mostly and for sure a whole lot more immature in most cases just really weren't my leaders, that my leader was Jesus Christ, that I was beholden to him and that I wasn't playing a part of a structure or uh, one of the things that came through in Craig's book and a little bit in in uh, in Rogers but I think it's a feature of a male mission is just this how am I viewed am I viewed as a leader am I going to be a senior am I going to be able to become a district leader am I going to be able to become a zone leader am I viewed as being good enough and that was just off the table so I didn't have those pressures but by the same token I just felt like those structures are not part of my experience. So I, you know, it would be taxation without representation for me to consider those roles to be in any way related to me. So I just, I assumed they didn't relate to me at all. I was interested that while you didn't feel like you played a role in the hierarchy, mission politics did seem to play a big part in your, your book. There's a lot about the interpersonal relationships between the missionaries, the tensions between them seem to play a really big part of your story. That is actually very true. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think I was probably a little bit of a question authority kind of person. And I still am, I suppose. But yeah, I, I called BS when I saw BS. And I know that, uh, you know, there's a point at which I, I kind of played along too. But I was doing it a little bit tongue in cheek. 
definitely the the elders I was closest friends with were the ones that didn't really go into the leadership ranks. Not that I didn't become friends with everybody. I really did. But the ones I was closest to or that I felt were the most relatable were the ones who didn't kind of succumb to those pressures because there were some rewards for some kind of shady behaviors amongst the leaders. And I, I found that hypocritical. I was very surprised that the dire method was still so strong in your mission at that point from the 1960s. Can you maybe explain a little bit about the dire method, how that played a yeah. role in your mission? Yeah, I didn't realize, first of all, I didn't know that this was such a controversial thing when I was a missionary. I didn't know the history of it. I didn't know about baseball baptisms or any of that. That's all stuff I found out about later. We read Dyer's essay, Challenging and Testifying Missionary, and we were encouraged to, you know, not wait for people to attend multiple meetings. You could baptize them after the first meeting. They could come to church, get baptized that day, and that was it. We had another rule that was you could not attend church if you didn't have an investigator with you. So for some chunk of my mission, I was inactive, <laughs> which was kind of a strange byproduct. I kept protesting. And then at some point I was like, well, I'm on some other island. I can just do what I want. <laughs> I can go to church if I want to go to church. I'm just going to go. <laughs> that was a, sort of a strange rule that we had. And there was just, it created a tension where there were some missionaries who felt like we should be more diligent about teaching all of the discussions, each one in a separate meeting. There were six discussions at the time. And then there were others, and I was probably more in this camp, where I was like, just follow the Spirit, teach things in the order that you think it's coming up organically, and then if they accept baptism, just you know go ahead and set the date immediately. You don't have to wait. So I was probably more in the rushing camp a little bit, uh, because that was kind of viewed as courageous and showing that you were committed to the work. A lot of problems with retention, although I think everybody does have problems with retention, especially in Europe. Roger, what was the missionary style, the proselyting style in Germany when you were there? We spent hours and hours and hours going door to door, called it tracting. There were not very many members, and so we couldn't visit them and do and rely on them to share the gospel with their friends. Germans are a very reserved people also, so they don't have a big circle of friends, usually, or at least at that time. So it was a lot of hours out knocking on people's doors and trying to get into conversations with them and teach them. And we had varying degrees of success. We also tried the Dyer method. I had one zone leader who who came across Alvin Dyer's book, The, the Challenge, and, uh, oh, he was gung-ho on this. I had my parents actually buy the book and send it to me, and we tried it for about a week, and we gave it up. <laughs> yeah, it, it I, I like that section of your book because um, I had some friends who were serving more in Northern Europe, and mm -hmm. Um, you know, they became a little interested in this technique that we were using down there. And but they were concluding kind of the same thing you did. Just it didn't fit with the culture. You're right about German culture. They're they're more reserved, but they're a little more maybe studious as well and thoughtful about these types of things. Whereas I think in, in the Canary Islands, people are very gregarious and people invited us in all the time, whether they were even interested or not, but everybody was willing to talk about religion and the nice girls with the free books. And <laughs> mm -hmm. it was quite a different culture. Yeah. One thing I didn't understand about the German culture when I was there is that World War II had affected them a great deal. They, a lot of the people I taught had lived through World War II. Uh, we, taught, we taught a lot of war widows 
and other people who were alive during that time. This is the mid-1970s, so it was 30 years after the war ended. And Later, I came to understand that the Germans had a big distrust of anyone who came along with a millennial message, that there was this thousand-year reign, you know, this was, this was Hitler. And they did not want to, they just didn't trust people. So it was, it was difficult. And I didn't, as a, as a young man, I didn't understand that. I just knew they were a very reserved people and, and not very religious. Yeah, that's one of the things that as I was writing and as I was reading your memoir as well as mine, and I feel like we fall short. And again, I can't say for sure that we still fall short, but we probably do. I think we fall short on that type of cultural insight being shared with prospective missionaries as they go to these areas, because there are so many times when you just make these faux pas and you also just don't really get it. I mean, how can mm -hmm. you as a middle-aged or middle, not middle-aged, middle-class uh, kid from an American upbringing, it's really hard to understand where people are coming from. Yeah. Roger, a big part of your book, a major theme seems to be those few moments where you really felt like spirit touched you or mm -hmm. touched your investigators and trying to get that every time, and but failing most times. Why, why did you make that such an important theme in your book? Well, one of, the, one of the things that really became clear to me as I started writing this is that many of the spiritual encounters I had did not turn out the way I thought they should have. And very often, and this is one thing I've learned in my life, is that we have a spiritual feeling and it's very difficult to interpret. And about half the time, I think I got it wrong and still do. Spiritual feelings are, as I put it before, devilishly difficult to decipher. They're really, they're feelings. And sometimes it's all interpretation and sometimes we get it wrong. And Bruder Terry certainly got it wrong in a few instances. Can you um, give me a story, someone you remember from your mission? Their story, their life still comes back to you when you define your own life or define your faith. Who do you remember on your mission? Well, probably the, the primary one was, was someone early on my mission, and that is the, the person in the book is Frau Richter. That chapter actually appeared in Dialogue as a personal essay years ago with the woman's real name. <laughs> I won't let on what it is. But when I wrote the essay originally, it was very positive and very faith-affirming. When I returned to that, maybe 15 years later, when I was writing this, this memoir, there were a lot more questions that arose. Frau Richter was a, a real seeker after the truth. She wanted to know. And at that time, I did not have a testimony. I, I was wanting to know just as much as she did. And she had, unfortunately, a pastor in the Lutheran Reformed Church. He would come by her house and raise questions about Mormonism. And then she would go to Bible study hour, and he was kind enough to turn Bible study hour every week into anti-Mormon hour. And so it was quite a challenge to teach her, but she really, really wanted to know. She was reading the Book of Mormon and praying about it. And one day we stopped in to visit her, and she asked some question. I can't remember what it was, but my companion, in answer, he just pulled out the Joseph Smith tract read Joseph Smith's testimony about having his vision. And when he read that, that experience of Joseph Smith and his testimony of it, a power came into that room that I've never felt before. It was overwhelming. None of us could speak for some time. And we just sat there and stared at each other. And eventually we excused ourselves and 
left her with the brochure and said, read this and pray about it. She was blown away. The next time we came, she asked to be baptized. My companion, who, who was the senior companion at the time, I was brand new. He said, no, we want to wait for your husband. And her husband wasn't nearly as interested as she was. And so he, he said, let's wait. And we waited. And the husband really never got around to it. And she lost the witness that she'd received. And it raised some interesting questions for me, just in terms of what that really meant. I thought I understood exactly what the Spirit was telling me, but as time has gone on, I've realized that it wasn't as all-encompassing as I thought. She interpreted it completely different than I did. When we asked her later what the Spirit was telling her, she said, it was telling me to repent. And to me, it was, it was a witness of the truth of Joseph Smith's vision in the Sacred Grove, but very, very different experiences that we had. And she ended up not being baptized, and her husband, of course, didn't either. So that was one of the big disappointments of my mission, but it was also one of the really powerful experiences. But it has raised some interesting questions about interpreting spiritual promptings and spiritual communication. Can I ask about one other story about James and Elsa? Oh, yeah. Often when it was too late to knock on doors, we would go back to the apartment and look through what we called the golden box. It was just a box of records of people who had been taught in the past. And uh, you couldn't really track after eight o'clock in the evening in, in Germany, or they would call the police on you. So we were back at the apartment one evening. We didn't have anyone to teach. And we looked through this box and I found this card and it was for whatever name I used, Elsa Sievers, I think. She had been taught about five times. All of the missionaries had written on there that she was golden, but her husband was a deadbeat. And so we decided, oh, we'd better go visit her. So we visited her, and she was she was just like the missionaries had said. She was golden. Wonderful spirit about her. The only problem was she had divorced her husband, but he was living with her. He was kind of out of work and not really doing much with his life and drinking a bit. He was a ball and chain around her leg. And so he he was uh, he was there in the apartment, but we taught her alone. He was he was often not around, and she was just golden. But at one point, she reached her limit with him, and she kicked him out. And we thought, oh, this is great. This is the time when she might be ready. Right about that same time, our mission president had a fireside that he was putting on, and we invited her to attend. And the mission president was a very powerful speaker, and she came, and she was just very impressed and felt the spirit very strongly and wanted to be baptized, but. In that same week, she needed to pick up something at a bar. She didn't drink, but she had needed to pick up something from, I think, the owner of the bar. And she dropped in at this bar with a friend and ran into this man, James. But she met him, and he moved in with her. And when we went to teach her the next time, it was, it was as if the walls had been painted black. We, there was such a dark feeling in the apartment. And he was one of the darkest spirits I've ever met. Not, not evil. It was just like he was spiritually dead. Uh, there was nothing there. He was, the, he was her opposite in almost every way. Anyway, we taught them for quite a while, and things didn't work out. And then I was transferred. My replacement in the city um, managed to get them married. So they did marry. And uh, I, didn't, I went home, didn't hear any more from them for quite a while. And then years later, my wife and I traveled back to Germany, and we went to that ward and there was a, a man standing out in front of the church when we walked up. And he looked at me and just was delighted to see me. And I couldn't remember who he was. I thought I'd remembered all of the members there in that ward because I'd served there for seven months. But 
when he told me his name, it was James. And they had joined the church and she was the primary president and he was in the elders quorum presidency. And her son was getting ready to go on a mission. And it was just incredible to see them. And then, of course, the stories always go on and found out I kept in touch with him. He wrote me of all the people. He was the one I was most frustrated with on my whole mission. And yet he was the one who kept in touch with with me the most. He wrote me one day and told me that Elsa had left him for a younger man. Uh, It seemed to be her weakness. But he, of all things, stayed active in the church until the day he died. And I received a funeral notice from his next wife. She sent me a little notice in the mail that he had passed away. And she was not a member of the church. So I have not had any more contact with them. But that that was an interesting encounter. And one of the things that Elsa had told me, this is the chapter title, I think, is that God works in mysterious ways. We tried to tell her, don't get involved with this man. He's he's not good. And she just looked at me and said, God works in mysterious ways. And we just said, no, not this way. He doesn't want you to meet people in a bar and have, have them move in with you. And little did I know that it actually did work out really well for James in the long run. I love the way that in your book that you take these these stories, these anecdotes, and then draw out these larger questions about the way God works or try and understand the mysteries of what's going on in our life. Well, that was the fun of it. Angel, what, what people do you still remember? When you define your own life or think about questions, who comes up in your mind from your mission? Well, I think maybe one of the main ones that comes up is Javier. He was somebody that figured into the book quite a bit. He was 17 at the time I was serving and his parents and he were baptized. He was living in a bit of a rough area in Las Palmas. We often would see heroin addicts just kind of laying in the street in that neighborhood. And um, it wasn't very far from our apartment, actually. (laughs) And uh, it didn't strike me as quite as dangerous as it really was, except for when my parents came back at the end and I was touring them around and Watching my aged mother stepping over heroin needles in the street gave me a little bit of pause. (laughs) Uh, She didn't seem as uh, invulnerable as I felt. So he and his family, he and his parents were people that we taught. So many things happened with them. My companion got uh, mugged one day when we were on our way down to see them. I was afraid she was going to blurt out that she had been mugged because, you know, it's a little bit stressful. And uh, I told her not to. And we got into their place, and as soon as we got in there, she just burst into tears and said, these guys mugged us, and I'm scared, and this happened, and whatever. And they got so upset, and the father and the son got together, grabbed a machete out of the back of the apartment, <laughs> chased these guys, got us in the car, and drove us around the area. And, you know, she's pointing at people saying, it might have been him, it might have been him. <laughs> and then she sees the guys that it was, and she said, "This those guys right there. And so they went out and kind of threatened them with this machete to get her watch back. And I was like, that probably isn't a good activity to have a new church member doing. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't have shared that with them. But in any case, we were very close to these guys. Javier ended up serving a mini mission, um, and he was partnered with the elder that I was accused of having a relationship with, and this is why I got transferred. So I got transferred to another island. The supposed boyfriend elder that was not a boyfriend at all (laughs) um, got partnered with this kid that I had baptized. And after about a week, he found him doing heroin in the bathroom. And so the, the mini mission ended. 
he felt kind of bad about that, but he and I had stayed in touch a little bit because he was wanting to keep me posted on how things were going. Then I got, uh, I moved around to some of the other islands for, for a few months or for several months. And then finally I was posted back to that same island, although in another part of the island and being back where he was. And I knew he was having problems with drugs again. I talked to president and I said, I know it's not in my area, but can I just go up and see what I can do here? Cause I felt like he wasn't getting, they weren't taking his drug problem seriously enough. I felt like he needed to get into rehab. He needed some support. And his parents were just such lovely, sweet people. It was so hard for them to hold him accountable. He'd take money from them and he'd do little petty crimes in the neighborhood. And it was really hard for them to see him do that and, and be able to take any kind of action. So uh, we went up, we talked to them, we, we got the family in touch with a woman who was doing a rehab program up in mainland Spain and got him registered for that. And um, and I got to see him off and he went up to that. And unfortunately, it didn't last. As soon as he started having withdrawals, they kind of relented and said, well, you can come home. It is cold up there. It's probably better down here. Come on back. So when I left the mission, I, I just felt like I just didn't know what was going to happen with him. I just was afraid. I, I think I had this idea that if you're a heroin addict, you never, you don't survive. Um, wasn't there a movie in the 90s that was Basketball Diaries, I think? And, mm -hmm. and you know, we had a lot of in, information about drug abuse, I think, in the States that was very anti-drugs, which not that I'm pro-drugs, but I think we had this narrative that if you ever do any of these hard drugs, you will not survive. And I, I had convinced myself he hadn't survived. but Interestingly enough, after I published the book, the elder who was, again, my supposed boyfriend elder was one of the ones that had read the book and he said, I'm going to find him. And he did. <laughs> and we're back in touch again. So we've been able to reconnect as a result of the book. The missions in, in these periods in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot more of a willingness to live in very uh, dangerous and unsanitary conditions showers that didn't work and things like that. I don't think mission mission families today showers. would be going to accept these. What yes, showers? I had <laughs> forgotten about that level of um, squalor. Squalor, yes. <laughs> so Angela, what, how do you think a mission has changed your life? What impact does it still have today? Uh, well, I definitely think it exposed me to people living in completely different cultures from what I was accustomed to. And uh, in my mission, a more religious culture, honestly, I would say, than the U.S., which is hard to find probably because <laughs> the U.S. seems quite religious. <laughs> but it is interesting just to live outside of your culture like that and to question the things that you assume and to do that at such a pivotal time in your life. And then to be exposed to people who were who were prostitutes and who were cast out from their families and who were drug addicts and things like that. I had no exposure to things like that growing up in rural Pennsylvania. And as a member of the church, I really had not. I knew some kids that, you know, smoked pot. That's one thing, but that's not the same thing as working intimately with a family dealing with heroin addiction. I do have one question for Angela. Someone told me years ago that on missions you have Two options. You get either cold weather or bugs. I had cold weather. I'm assuming you had bugs. Um, well, yeah, we did have flying cockroaches mm. um, that we had to contend with. That's true. Yeah, that's probably a fair point, unless you get assigned to Arizona where we live now, because mm. it's yeah. too hot for the bugs, I too think. Here. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, in Germany, it was too cold for the bugs. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Angela and Roger, thank you so much for participating with us today. I encourage everybody to go out, find these books, and relive, rethink about your own missionary experience if you had one, or take this chance to find out about these other experiences. Thank you very Thanks, much. Andrew. Thanks. Dialogue, 